Um, this morning we're talking about uh, the Trinity, which uh, I'm not going to do a good job of. Um, because the Trinity is probably the most difficult theological concept in the Bible. So uh, this is going to be a little bit more of a teaching than a preaching sermon. I'm going to be trying to uh, impart some knowledge to you, but I'm going to give you three key takeaways at the front end so that if I go way off the rails and you don't understand what I'm talking about because I'm terrible at explaining it, not because uh, you wouldn't understand it, but because I'm not very good at explaining things, um, that, that you will at least take away something. But the first thing I wanted to start with is this diagram, which uh, really made it work for me. The doctrine of the Trinity is something, and we'll talk about this in a moment, it's a central theme in Scripture, even though the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. So it's kind of one of these weird things. It's, it's how we describe something that we see in the Bible that isn't specifically in the Bible explicitly. And basically, it goes like this, that we serve a monotheistic God. Say monotheistic. Monotheistic just means one, that there is only one God, but that this God acts in three distinct persons or personalities. That's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So as you can see in this kind of flux capacitor, um, the Father is not the Son, but is God. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, but is God. The Holy Spirit is not either the Father or the Son, but is God. I think that this if you remember nothing else, just remember this diagram and you've learned something about the nature of God. So even if you don't have a key takeaway this morning of like, how am I going to apply this to my life? Trinitarian theology means a lot for me. I actually think it does, and we'll get to that. But if you don't come away with anything like that, come away with the idea that you have a clearer picture of who God is as is presented in the Christian scriptures, that is the Bible. That there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And part of the reason why I love the Revised Common Lectionary is because I would never preach on this. Never. I would confine this to Sunday school or something. But the lectionary says, it's Trinity Sunday. You better go out and do it, and then I have to do it, right? It forces my hand, and maybe there are people uh, in this congregation or online who are listening, um, who this is really important, and they're like, I just really want somebody to tell me what this is all about and why this is important. Um, so that's kind of a cool thing. But if you take nothing else away, take a clearer picture of God away, this flux capacitor looking Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that, they, that they're all God, one God together, but they're three distinct persons. And so as I go through the next like 20 minutes here, um, I'm not going to do a very good job outside of this image. Because the truth is we don't actually understand this. We come up with words in what we call systematic theology, we come up with words that are supposed to describe this, but we actually just make the words up. Because there's nothing in creation that is quite like this. If you said, oh, well, it's kind of like water. Sometimes it's vapor, and sometimes it's solid, and sometimes it's liquid, then I would respond with, but water can't be both solid, liquid, and vapor all at the same time, can it? And you'd say, no, and I'd say, not a good analogy. Right? This is a really, really difficult thing to wrap your head around. And uh, even though it's not easily understood, because it's Trinity Sunday, I'm hoping, like I said, to do one thing. Uh, not to make you prepared to write a doctrinal thesis on this. Um, if you want to go out and do that, I encourage you. North Park Theological Seminary has online courses. Um, but is actually to glean, one, a clearer picture of who God is, and two, maybe why this is important for your life. So uh, these are my three keys, key concepts for you to take away this morning, 
Okay? The first one that we're going to be unpacking is that though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, it's a central theme from the first verses of Scripture. Okay? I just, I want to get across to you that this is something that's been a part of the Christian church forever. I'm not making this up. If you've never heard this before, it's because we don't want to talk about it because it's too difficult to talk about. I imagine that you have heard it, heard this or something like it before, but it's a key concept. Even though it's not in the Bible, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, the concept of the Trinity is an essential part of the Bible from the very beginning. We're going to talk, it's verse, literally, um, even before Genesis 1.26, which is the verse that I put up accidentally last week when I meant to put it up this week. Remember that? Yeah, that was funny. Um, yeah, even before that, it's there. But that's the most clear place where it begins, this idea. So first 26 verses of the Bible, there's four or five references to the Trinitarian God. Uh, key number two, the doctrine of the Trinity both embodies God through Jesus and grants us access to God through the Holy Spirit. See, I think that we in the Western world, we really don't like to talk about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is something that exists that's, that's hard to quantify and grab onto. We really like the person of Jesus, okay? That's why when you listen to worship music on uh, Caleb or wherever you were, listen or, you know, just on like 8-Tracks uh, Radio or whatever, iTunes Radio, all the songs are about Jesus because it's, Jesus is a person who's very identifiable. He's a human being. So it's easy to be like, oh, okay, Jesus, I can, do, I can deal with that. And then actually God is not that hard either because we do a really bad job of understanding who God is, right? It's the man upstairs, right? It's the big guy in the sky, whatever that means. So we're okay with those two concepts, and uh, we don't really integrate those concepts well, but we're okay with them in isolation. And then um, we have this third person of the Trinity that just really throws a monkey wrench into it for us. So... The doctrine of the Trinity, at its core, embodies that God, that, uh, that uh, the doctrine of the Trinity both embodies God through Jesus and grants us access, that's another embodiment of God, through the Holy Spirit. The third thing is that there is a distinct relational aspect. This is what we're going to land on. This is what I think is the most important thing to realize when we're talking about the Trinity. There's a distinct relational aspect to the Trinity that reveals to us something central about God's nature. So if anybody wants to pull out their phone and take a picture of this so that they can like keep it in mind as we're going forward, that's okay. Um, like I said, we're, we're, it's a little bit of a roller coaster today. So number one, though the Trinity is not in the Bible, it's a central theme from the first verses of Scripture. I want to jump here for a moment to, uh, this is some sacred art. I'm not going to sit on that slide. I don't have time for that. Okay. Um, Genesis 1.26. I said it begins at the beginning of the Bible. If you have your Bible with us today, uh, anybody have a, a Bible? You should, it, this is just a good PSA. If you don't bring your Bible, even if your Bible's on your phone, you should because it's a good opportunity to just like write notes in it and stuff if you do that. Um, and if you're like, but I don't want to destroy my Bible, you should go through like six to eight Bibles in your life. Like don't, don't worry about destroying this one. You'll get another one. Don't use your confirmation Bible. They're like $9 on Amazon, right? Like, Bring a Bible that you can use, that you can write in, that you can uh, at least do. Or, or bring a bunch of sticky notes if you're that person. Um, but uh, who, if you brought your Bible with us, Genesis 1, 26, what page is that on in your Bible? Two. It's on page two. In my Bible, it's on page three because it's real big letters. Many people, it's on page one. I want you to hear that in the, if this book is allegedly, according to Christianity, especially us uh, in the Covenant Church, this book is the story of God. 
The first verse I'm going to be talking about is found on page 2. This is right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. When God goes to create human beings, it says, God said, so God, think of a plural word here, God said, let us make humankind in our image and according to our likeness. Let us make humankind in our image and according to our likeness. Jews believed in this idea of a monotheistic or a singular entity that was God. The same thing that Christians believed, but they didn't have the the Trinity language, right? They didn't have the Holy Spirit in Jesus. They didn't have a fully, again, big words, realized Christology. Jesus had not shown up yet, so they had never been asked to question that. But yet, even throughout all of their non-questioning of the Trinitarian God, they had to deal with that statement on page two. Imagine, if you will, how confused they must have been. Okay, there's only one God, which is in opposition to what other cultures at the time believed. There was other cultures at the time that believed in the pantheon or all of the gods of the sky. And they're like, hey, you guys are all wrong. We only believe in one God who identifies God's self in plural language on page two. It's very, very, very confusing to them. And so understand that when Jesus comes along, which we're going to talk about here, um, even though it was a central theme from, from page two, it, was, it had to be unpacked. This is why Paul talks about, like, I have to unpack the Hebrew, I have to reveal the Hebrew scriptures. Why Jesus on the road to Emmaus, we talked about this uh, is it two or three weeks ago, Jesus on the road to Emmaus explains all of the Hebrew scriptures to them, right? They, they knew them cold. They had their Bible memorized. But until this new event happened, this Jesus phenomenon, and then the the Holy Spirit going out from the people, they had no idea how to interpret some of this stuff that was in the Old Testament, even the earliest parts of the Old Testament. So, you know, there's other places that this is clear, but uh, Proverbs, I think, is like one of the best ones. And so, I'm going to jump ahead. That's not on. Yeah. So, Proverbs, here we go. Um, uh, 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 revealing too much. Stop. Okay. Proverbs is one of the clear places where this happens. Again, imagine that you believe there's only one God, which we, which we assent to in Christianity, but we see it as like this Trinitarian God. There's more than one part to God. Um, imagine that you didn't have that framework of understanding, and then Proverbs 8 shows up. You have the creator God, the big guy in the sky, right, who creates the whole world and everything in it. Now we understand that to be the universe and even the galaxies and beyond that. But it says, I was there, says the Spirit. The whole, the, this is called wisdom in Proverbs. Most Christian scholars say that this is the Holy Spirit speaking in Solomon's life. I was there when he assigned the sea to its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command. They might not go beyond the place where he decided they should go. And when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him like a master worker. The NLT says like, an, like his architect. 
And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. It says, I was, assi- I was there, it says at the beginning of Proverbs 8, uh, or verse 21, I was there before anything was created, but I was there when he assigned the sea its limits so the waters might not transgress his command, so he marked the foundations of the earth, uh, and I was beside him as his architect. I want to ask, for those people who um, might read scripture more regularly or, or whatever, does this remind you of anything? This reminded me almost immediately of Job. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Job is this great story in the Old Testament, and it's designed as an allegory. So Job, most Hebrew people in, in, in biblical times did not believe that Job was a literal person. Job was an allegorical person. So Job was a story that told, a, that told another story. It told a truth, a deeper truth. And basically, Job is perfect. This is part of the reason why we know he's not a real person, because nobody's ever been perfect other than Jesus. So, but it says Job is perfect. He's never sinned. And yet, all this bad stuff happens to Job. And the whole point of the story is supposed to be, I think, that uh, Job is trying to deal with this whole karma issue of saying, do bad things happen to good people? And, And God basically says, hey, Nothing you do on this earth has anything to do with any of the circumstances that you might face. This is beyond your understanding. But Job is like kind of cocky, like most human beings are. See, most human beings, we like making God into our image, right? We're not, we don't like the Trinitarian God. We want the God that agrees with us theologically, politically, etc. We want God to be on our team. We don't want to be on God's team. And so Job goes... You know, God, I'm challenging you in the court of, like, the eternal powers. And God comes down and just smacks him around. And he does so like this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You, uh, or who stretched a line upon it? Who shut the sea with doors? And then when it burst out from the womb, it says who? And then another place it says, who told the waters where to cease or where to halt? And then they halted. Well, it actually tells us. The Holy Spirit. See, God, this is, this is kind of the beauty of this passage. It, it tells us, because we can juxtapose it with the other thing that's going on in the Bible through the person of Job, it actually tells us that the Holy Spirit was there from the beginning. Why is this important? Because it speaks to who God is in its very core. God's very core, God is not a singular presence, but three presences. And you just get, I'm going to keep driving this home. I'm just using, this is kind of apologetic here. I'm just showing you where this is in the scriptures. I'm not telling you why it's important yet, but just understand the clear picture of God in the Hebrew scriptures from the very beginning all the way through Job, all the way through Proverbs, is that God is more than just a singular personality. It's going nice and slow today for me. Okay. So number two, key concept number two. The doctrine of the Trinity both embodies God through Jesus and grants us access to God through the Holy Spirit. This is what our New Testament readings were about today. 
God actually interacts with us in two profound ways. I think you can almost say God interacts with us in three profound ways. If you read the rest of the Psalms, especially the one that was in the lectionary reading that we didn't read today, say that God interacts with us, one, through creation. When we see creation, we see God. We learn about who God is. Number two, God interacts with us through the person of Jesus, through the actual embodiment of God into a human being. And third, God interacts with us within ourselves that God connects to us both externally and internally. And this is central. This is central to understanding why the Trinity is the way it is, right? Or understanding why it matters to us. See, not everything's about us. God is not Trinitarian for our benefit. God is Trinitarian because it is God's very nature to be so. It's for us to see why that's important to us. But one of the ways that we see that it's important to us is that God connects to us both externally and internally. I want to just freeze here for a moment because I think that the whole story of Jesus is pretty, again, I, you know, I, I've talked about this many times, but it's pretty ridiculous that God would want to have relationship with us. It's pretty ridiculous. But God chooses to connect with us externally through creation and through Jesus and internally through the Holy Spirit within us. So that if we look inward, we actually can find God in the Holy Spirit. Those of us who are in Christ can find God. He's there. The Holy Spirit, an advocate, it says in the New Testament, to guide you. That God is actually here. Right? This is, always, this is why I don't like the language when Jesus is in your heart. I know it's in the Bible, so I'm not going to try to knock it. But um, I don't like that language because it's really the Holy Spirit, right? Like, from a Trinitarian perspective, like, Jesus is a human being. He's probably not hanging out in my, like, lower atrium. Okay? But, but the Holy Spirit, that's a spirit. That, that might interact with me in ways that are outside of the physical presence of the physical universe. So God connects with us both externally and internally. At least that's what the Bible says. But, but I think, like I said, I think we have to, to stop here and, and before we take this for granted, because I don't do this uh, a lot, sometimes I assume that people know the story or at least have thought about the story. That's a pretty ridiculous thing. So I want you to imagine for a moment, like, eight, so the ancient peoples didn't know about the universe. Well, that's not true. The ancient Hebrews didn't know about the universe. Ancient Egyptians did. But ancient Hebrews didn't know about the universe like we do today. But um, understand, they just thought that the world, that's what, what creation was, just the earth. And so when you, when you think about a God who creates elephants and tigers and mountains and water and, like, all of the massiveness of God's creation. And then the stars in the sky, I mean, just makes it rain, literally, right? Like, just an incredible being of power and might. I don't think that it's, it's, it's uh, strange that other faiths think that Christians are heretics because we say that God wants to have a relationship with us. It's a pretty heretical thing, right? That a God who's so transcendent, so above, so beyond, so holy, so set apart, would want to become a human being, like a fleshy sack of bones? Like, this is not like an attractive form when you're deity. Right? I want you to imagine, uh, the, the best example that I came up with was this. Okay? 
The ant colony. Anybody ever had an ant colony? Yeah, just a couple people? All right, kids in the front row, Eli in the back somewhere. Minecraft, right? Same thing. The digital ant colony, right? Roller coaster tycoon, okay? For those of us who are a little older than Minecraft, okay? Imagine that you had an ant colony, because I know my audience. I'm not going to go into Minecraft. Um, imagine that you had an ant colony. And, uh, you know, you had it up on your shelf, and the ants did little things, and you could put little blockades in. I don't know if you ever had an ant farm, but you'd put little blockades in. they got to go around it, make them do things, right? Put a little piece of food in there, and you've got to carry it through, right? Like you, have a little, you have a little power over them. You can just shake that thing up, and it's all ruined, right? right? You're God. Imagine if you were like, let me become an ant, and then, like, be forced to crawl around in these tunnels with other ants. And then imagine for a moment, it, you go even beyond that, right? Imagine if you're a Minecraft character, for those of my, my younger audience. Imagine if you, had a, you created a Minecraft map and you spent all this time creating it and you know you can destroy it because it's creative mode, right? Like, the game isn't even fighting you. And, and, uh, and you just became one of the Minecraft, like, NPCs, right? Like... It would be totally below you. You're the creator. You have power. You could shake up that ant colony. You can destroy their castle that you made them, those NPCs, right? Right? You, like, you have all this power, but you're like, actually, I'm going to become one of them. And then beyond that, I'm not only going to become one of them, I'm going to seek personal relationship, not even with the whole colony, but with individual ants within the colony. I'm going to lower myself even beyond becoming one of them. I'm going to enter them. They're going to be able to hear my voice, whatever that means. Some people hear it literally. Some people hear it figuratively. They're going to be able to hear my call, as Rudy talked about this morning, and they're going to be able to say no if they want to. They're going to be able to say, I'm actually comfortable. I don't want to go to Costa Rica. They're going to be able to, like, that's how much God chooses to lower God's self to be in relationship with us. He becomes, and, and the idea, like, we actually can't manufacture ants out of nothing. So actually the metaphor breaks down because we don't have as much power over the ant colony as God has over us. But that's why we get to this third key, distinctive. That's just, this is where it all comes home where it all wraps up. Because if you're confused, it's like, okay, why does God need to be three? Number one, even though it's in the Bible, you can accept, okay, it's there. You can believe the Bible or not believe the Bible. That's your business. But it's there from the very beginning, even when they didn't want it to be. Two, God, if we believe the Bible, God chooses to interact with us even though he doesn't have to, even though he's the master of the ant colony and we're just the ants. And three, I think this is where it all comes home. That the distinct relational aspect of the, tr the Trinity reveals something central to us about God's own nature. It's basically this. God is community. Keep those words in that order. You say community is God, you've gotten it wrong. God is community. God literally, at God's very core, to God's very central perspective, is the space between, the love between entities. God literally is communal. 
Father Richard Rohr talks about this in this way. He says, um, for God to be sovereign, God can be one. But for God to be loving, God must be at least two or three. God cannot be loving if there is, at, at, God, God, can imbi- God can act lovingly, but God cannot literally be love unless there's more, unless there's mutuality there. I can't explain why this is, but I can kind of work on how this plays out in human humanity. And like I said, if I gave you any uh, good analogy, they'd break down and fall apart because my brain is just not big enough. Um, I'm sure somebody has come up with a good analogy for the Trinity, but Google was not able to find it on pages one through eight. So um, I tried. Let me give you the example of a marriage for a moment. And understand that this example breaks down immediately because I'm not God. My wife isn't God. We don't do things perfectly. But we have different roles in our marriage. We have different functions. And those functions are not based on cultural stereotypes or gender dynamics or these things. Um, I don't think that that's God's desired plan. Uh, if you do, that's fine. You can hold that theological perspective. I, I don't necessarily. Um, but our roles function based on our giftings. I'll give you an example. When it comes time to clean, I'm willing to clean the house. But I am terrible at it. And when you're like, oh, come on, John, like, you're not really that bad at cleaning. No, like, I'm really bad. Like, I will clean 85 to 90% of everything in the kitchen and just randomly leave one dish in the sink. Like, why do all of the dishes and then leave a fork? Like, I don't know why I do. I can't see it. I would walk around like a complete and total idiot if I did not have my wife to be like, yeah, I mean, you did like 80%, but like here's the last 20%, right? Like you cleaned up everything from breakfast except the milk, right? The most essential part to put in the fridge. My wife, she doesn't like doing like mail. She doesn't open mail. What is this? 2,000? Mail? Bills? Nah, it's not her thing. I think if I didn't go to the mailbox, eventually it would just fall over (laughs) from being filled with so many things. Also because I installed it and you know I don't do footings very well, right? But seriously, like, these are different functions that we operate within. And if we were completely and totally loving, like completely loving, like perfectly loving, there was no hierarchy in our relationship whatsoever, total and complete equals, no power trips, then this would work. The analogy wouldn't break down. It would be a great analogy. We would live in community. We would share one will. In those two instances, we do share will, right? Nobody wants the house to be dirty, right? Even though, like, we're on the same team. Nobody wants bills to go unpaid. We're on the same team here. We just function differently within those things. But But see, that's when it says God is community because even though God could do all of those things, like God doesn't need the Holy Spirit to come in and tell him to put the, finish the dishes, the beauty of the relationship is that in doing those things and fulfilling those roles, we actually get to enact love towards one another. That's what love really is, right? And there's so many other beautiful ways that this happens. 
Humanity, God intervening in humanity is God just acting out of God's own communal self. God's like, I, I can't help but interact with humanity because I am literally communal. God is more extroverted than you've, of any person you've ever met. God is the community, the space between. God is the marriage of heaven and earth. This is why the marriage language happens all over in the Bible. This is why. Because it's supposed to be reflective of the community that God, that's why we talk about one flesh in a marriage, right? Like, this is supposed to be reflective of what Trinitarian theology does. That there is this perfect union. I'm just not perfect, so we don't do it very perfectly. Let me just end on this. What does this mean to us? Well, number one, if you took nothing else away, you learn something about God. God's three and God's one. Why? I don't know. How does that function? It means that God's communal. How did it happen metaphysically? Your guess is as good as mine. Number two, lean into your community. Lean into your community. Do not isolate yourself. God does not isolate God's self because God is literally three and one. God is a marriage of three, which is really confusing to our concepts of marriage. But it is perfect. God is this perfect unity, these three distinct personalities in one. So when you go out and you love, love knowing, knowing that you're imitating the very love which God shares for God's self. I know that that is a little heady, but think of it like this. You, you are actually, you're acting like God. So love like God. Number two, you know, when you gather for like barbecues and game nights like we're trying to put on here and, and other things, know that we're imitating the relational nature of God. That's why Christian community is central, because God is communal. Otherwise, you could just go off and do it by yourself, but you can't. That's why the church is important. I wish we could just all do it by ourselves. We'd all have freer Sunday mornings. Number three, when we take communion, we're going to take communion now, even though we don't have time, but we're going to do it because it's the most important reason why we're here. Understand that this is just another example. This is just another example of the community, right? Like This is why Jesus institutes it. Number four, when you have that mutual submission, when you have that person, it doesn't have to be a spouse does for some of the things I'm going to list, but when you truly mutually submit to another person, you're acting out that deep community that exists. So, you know, child rearing, having deep conversation, doing chores, all the wonderful things about marriage, sex, they're all part of who God is. It's all there. So don't go to church and try and isolate. Don't be the church in isolation. Be the church in community because that's who God is.